I got my first real management leadership job in an American company, I saw that I'm lacking the skills and I saw this gap in my upbringing and I realized that I urgently need to fix it. So that was the year was 1995 when I went and got my executive MBA. Kirill Tatarnov grew up in the former Soviet Union, the son of a government computer architect. The family didn't swallow state propaganda. His grandfather once spent 10 years in a Soviet gulag. To achieve his dreams, young Kirill would have to get out of the Soviet Union and move to the other side of the world. Tatarnov is now the CEO of Citrix Systems, a $13 billion tech company that makes it easier to share information and get work done from anywhere. His journey to this point includes stops in Israel and Australia, working for startups and for Microsoft. It also included a wake-up call about what it really takes to drive a company towards success. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Ford from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. And once you've done that, share the wealth. Tell a friend. Kirill Tatarinov grew up in an educational system in the USSR with a reputation for technical excellence. While he was there and along the way, he learned there's more to success than just knowing the right answer. Here's Kirill Tatarinov on how he first realized his future was in technology. My, my dad was computer engineer and, and an architect working for um, Russian Soviet government at the time. And uh, when I was growing up, probably like the earliest real memories that I have, I was four when my dad working on his PhD. And of course, those were the days with no PowerPoints and uh, nothing of that kind. So preparing for your dissertation meant that there were lots of gigantic charts all over the apartment. And I like grew up remembering how I sit in the corner of the table watching my dad put these charts and algorithms and all of that. And uh, it's like probably it from that point on. I knew that this is what I want to do and uh, the rest is kind of, I went to school doing that and, uh, and after school and then sort of continued. Do you ever dream you'd end up running a tech company in the United States? Of course, from, <laughs> from when I was four. <laughs> well, I mean, look, you, you look back at, and, you know, I've been in the industry now 31 years. You look back and uh, you just look at the moments where you got really fortunate being, being at the right place at the right time, but more importantly, having the right mentors and uh, working with amazing people who really helped me shape who I am as a professional. What do you see as some of the differences between the methods of, of teaching and learning when it comes to um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, <coughs> math, growing up in the Soviet Union yeah. versus how we do it here? Because I mean, I know that math, from what I've seen, is just traditionally a very strong suit as far yeah. as uh, you know, Russian kids. How no, it's, an act, it's a great question and um, there was a stark difference. And basically, if you, if you think about the major part of the difference, the Russian, well back then, Soviet education system was based on an in-depth individual learning huh. and with very little team orientation. Huh. And compare and contrast that to um, 
the Western American system, where lots of learning is team-oriented. Now, when, when you say individual orientation, what do you mean? Do you mean customized, or do you mean it's all about the answers that you get and That's that right. you figure out and delivering the correct answer versus working with other people on any kind? There of was very little working with other people. Okay, and um, I think so. It's kind of the advantage of the Western system. It creates lots of soft skills and help create lots of soft skills, and uh, it creates the skills of working in the team environment. And we always work in team environment. Uh, the advantage of or benefit of, of, of that old system that, that, that I grew up with, it's an incredible depth. It's an incredible depth of you know, physics, computer science, electrical engineering. Uh, it went much deeper in math, much deeper in math. And everything that was done was, you know, you're on your own, basically. You're expected to study almost always by your own. You, it's, it's all, you know, there were no tests or anything where a team comes up and, uh, and presents it. <laughs> and I mean, to be honest with you, when I, when I first um, moved to the United States in the um, mid-90s, after having a stint in uh, Israel and Australia before that, um, and I got my first real management leadership job in an American company, I saw that I'm lacking the skills, and I saw this gap in my upbringing, and I realized that I urgently need to fix it. So that was the year was 1995 when I went and got my executive MBA, huh. which was hard as hell because <laughs> I, you know, I had two little children. I was working more than full time, and wow. uh, you know, executive MBA on top of that about 20 hour a week. It was. It was two years from hell, and uh, I'd say return of this program was not at 100%. There were certain things that I already knew, but yet it really helped me get what I was missing, this set of soft skills, ability to operate in a team, because everything in that executive MBA program was done in a team, every do you, assignment. Do you remember the work situation that illuminated for you that you had this blind spot? Yeah, I think, um, I think the work situation was, um, my company got acquired, and uh, this was the time when uh, it was acquired by BMC Software, mm. and I was one of the co-founders of Patrol Software. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, at that time, BMC was uh, almost uh, almost 100% a mainframe shop, and the whole reason behind BMC acquiring Patrol in 1994 was to get into distributed systems. And Patrol did what? Patrol did distributed systems management, mm -hmm. distributed systems and database management. Mm. And so it was pretty clear that the company needs to transform, and it was pretty clear that very quickly we needed to gain mindshare in a company that really didn't, didn't, didn't understand the technology, didn't understand the new age, didn't understand much about this new era of distributed computing. And I really didn't know where to start. <laughs> and like things that you, know, you, you, you take for granted, hey, you're about to walk into a large meeting before you do that, you probably should understand who are the key decision makers in that in that big meeting. You should, you should probably chat with them before that and uh, and kind of try to win some mind share. I had no clue that this was required. So it was this was like hard as hell. And and after trying it for about you know three or four months, I'm like, I need to learn something new. I need to understand how it's done. I need to understand how people work in that environment. So it sounds like you're saying when businesses need to change, 
even technology-wise, even product-wise, it's as much about bringing people along socially, about helping them feel comfortable and understanding where you're trying to lead them as it is about having the right answer. Absolutely. Well, I mean, look, change is first and foremost about culture. Hmm. And culture is about people. Culture is about working with people. And culture is about creating the environment that is essentially self-regulating and leading to positive outcomes without constant interference. And that's what culture is so important for any company. That's why we spent so much on culture at Citrix in the last, in the last 14 months. And I actually think it's, it's now starting to produce pretty amazing positive outcomes for us. So talk to me about your personal path and how it overlaps mm -hmm. some things. Because you know, you're talking about you'd, you'd uh, co-founded this company, Patrol Software, in the mid-90s. Early 90s, yeah. Early 90s, integrating into BMC. So, I mean, there was a lot going on politically around the time in the, in the two worlds that you're bridging from, you know, the former Soviet Union to the United States of America. How did that affect your outlook on what technology was doing and the impact that you wanted to have in the industry? Well, as, as I mentioned, there were, there were a few stops down, down the journey. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, I mean, first of all, when I think every immigrant has an advantage of being incredibly adaptable mm. because that's what you learn when you go from one country and when you go from more than one country at a time <laughs> you learn a lot of that. So Australia your first stop outside? Actually my first stop was Israel. Oh Israel I, first. Yeah, right. I, I, we, left, we left Soviet Union in 1990 when it was still, it was still, still Soviet Union when it was still pretty darn hard to get out. And uh, How did you get out? Uh, well we, you had to apply and wait mm. and, uh, and that's, that's what we did. And then uh, we, uh, we came to Israel and um, actually ended up there during the first Gulf War. So uh, going through this experience that teaches you a lot when you uh, have to wake up in the morning and put your gas mask and then go to work. And uh, when the siren sounds, you've got to be prepared to uh, go to a sealed room and uh, hide for, from a potential chemical attack that Saddam was threatening you with. Yeah. How old were you? Uh, I was 26, turning 27 when this was uh, when that when that was happening, and that just teaches you resiliency. And uh, after you went through something like this, you don't have much fear anymore. <laughs> and uh, you know, I remember one night it was um, it, it was it was really scary experience. Uh, we were living in in uh, in northern part of Israel in a town called Haifa. Mm. And uh, one night during this uh, first uh, Gulf War, um, the, um, the Israeli Defense Forces installed the Patriot, Patriot missile, Patriot Squadron, about 500 yards from our house. Wow. And of course, they didn't tell anybody about that. And, uh, and then one night there was a attack, and apparently there was a scud coming pretty close. So they launched the missile. Well, the interesting thing about Scud missile being launched, and I hope nobody who's listening and neither you ever experiences that, mm. it actually grows in sound. So this, when you listen to this, you feel like it's an incoming rocket. Oh. It was probably one of the scariest experiences I ever had in my life. And again, that just, that just teaches you a lot. And after that, no fear. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what were you working on in Israel at the time? Uh, I was working for, it was, um, it was a networking company. Uh, 
I don't believe they're around anymore. Uh, the company was called Fibronics. Mm. Uh, they were um, they were pioneer in fiber optic communications and uh, fiber optic networking and bridges. And uh, I was working, I would say, kind of looking back, probably with the smartest group of engineers that was putting together network management system for their devices. Mm. And uh, it was amazing learning for me. I was, again, 20, 26 year old, working in that engineering environment, working in that engineering culture. These were, these were all PhD level programmers. And uh, you know, many of them, after, after that, went to companies like Sun Microsystems and many startups. And uh, they're, they're now either CEOs of companies or, um, or chief architects of, of some big technical projects. So it was, uh, it was phenomenal learning from, from the technical side, and I think it really formed me, or finished formation of me as engineer, and enabled me to, uh, to go and build, well actually to build Patrol after that. A lot of what I learned at Fibronics uh, really helped me do that. It also taught me some very powerful lesson on the role of marketing uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the technology landscape. I mean, basically what Fibronics built back then was, without a doubt, the best network management system on earth. It was all object-oriented, the graphics was phenomenal, uh, the configuration was amazing, it was true platform. And uh, in later years, learning Sun Microsystems Network Manager and uh, HP OpenView, which by the way, two years later was declared the hottest product on earth <laughs> in that particular space, Fibronics had a better tech, and they did nothing to market it. Mm. And as a result, it basically died seven years later, completely gone. And that was, that was, that was just a shame. And kind of looking back, I'm like, oh, geez, I mean, if, if they could only apply some marketing muscle, if they could only do what was necessary to position it as a true platform for managing networks and networking devices, it would have been so much different, and they could become a powerhouse, and yet it just it just completely gone. And now I, I don't believe the company exists. So in the mid late, in your mid late twenties, you're in Israel working on uh, networking technology. Where did you expect to go from there? Did you expect to go back home to the Soviet Union? Do you did you no. expect to? Why? Uh, well, you never look back. You know, you never, you never, you never go back. And uh, it was it was a really tough, tough situation in uh, in Soviet Union at the time. And I didn't I didn't leave Soviet Union to go back. Hmm. And by the way, I left I left Soviet Union with no papers. Oh, I was I was, you know, we talk about refugees a lot about refugees these days. Well, I was a refugee. I didn't I, until I until I came to Israel. I didn't have a passport. And. Uh, Today I don't have Russian citizenship. I didn't. It was, it was taken away from me when I was when I was leaving. As a matter of fact, I had to pay to denounce my uh, my Soviet citizenship when me and my family were leaving. Quite a lot of money <laughs> by by those standards. Wow. Oh, yeah, that was, those were the days. Those <laughs> were the days. Yeah. I mean, I, forgive me. I you know I I was in you know let's see mid nineties, you know middle school mm -hmm. at the time. And as, as you might imagine, I'm sure you knew from your side of things, you're fed only certain information about what's going on on the other side of the, of the Cold War. Yeah. So what was your feeling about the place you were leaving? I mean, it had been home, but 
Well, I mean, look, it was home and yet it wasn't home. Hmm. Because uh, my grandfather spent 10 years in Soviet gulag. And uh, we were kind of brought up different. Hmm. And uh, we're not, we were not alone. And, uh, you know, my circle of friends certainly knew what was really going on. And, um, you know, there was always literature around my house that could probably send you to gulag for many years. Solzhenitsyn and a bunch of other literature was absolutely prohibited. You know, I grew up reading that. Mm. And, uh, you know, we didn't really watch sort of state propaganda TV at our house. Uh, there were ways to uh, get BBC World Service that was broadcasting in Russian and um, Soviets were trying to suppress it and block it, but it was still coming through. And uh, the same with Voice of America. So we grew up listening to that, and we knew the truth. We, you know, not everybody, but uh, the sort of small layer of, of people, they called them intelligentsia. You know, my mom was a doctor. My dad was a computer architect. Um, my stepdad later was, was, was an orthopedic surgeon. And, and so these were the people who really knew what was going on. Mm. And not that they were actively fighting the regime, because it was pretty much impossible at that time, but uh, there, are certainly, there are certainly people who knew what was going on. I grew up knowing, knowing what was going on, and uh, you know, in, in, that, in that layer of people, America and the West was actually viewed very positively. Mm. So you were able to get out, got to Israel, uh, worked for this networking company, eventually ended up in Australia. Yeah, I eventually ended up in Australia. Um, it, you know, things were really going well for me in Israel, but uh, after, after that horrific experience mm. during, during the war. And, uh, you know, if you're in Israel and if you, and if you study the conflict, unfortunately, as, as much as I hate saying it, once you see it, you realize that it's probably never going to be peace. Mm. And uh, after you go through the war experience, I basically promised my wife that uh, we will go to a peaceful place, and so we did. Okay. And you were there for how long before coming to the U.S.? I was in Australia since 91 through 94, three years. Okay. Yeah, just enough time to uh, start a company, build a product, and then sell it. And then sell it. That was Patrol, which you, sold to, Patrol, which you sold to BMC. Brought yeah. you to the U.S. You recognized that operating in this That's right. culture yeah. was going to require some soft skills, so you got those. Ended up eventually at Microsoft. What was that like? Because here's a company that had managed to marry technical proficiency with marketing genius at the dawning of the PC age, at least timing-wise. Technical right? proficiency, yes. Marketing genius, I would say questionable, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, their timing in being able to sell their software to IBM and, and uh, tout things that were maybe just barely ready or would be ready in time. Uh, it's kind of legendary. It, it, I wouldn't call it marketing genius. It's, okay. It's, what would you what would you call it's, it? It's, it? Well, no, it's 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 a business genius, mm. and, and uh, or, or or I would say <laughs> genius in general. Uh, well, I mean, look, it is it is a known fact that that Microsoft became Microsoft by being founded by geniuses and by really focusing throughout company's history on hiring the best and the brightest. Mm. And I am, I feel and I will always feel incredibly fortunate that I was able to get to Microsoft. Uh, 
and uh, that I worked there on helping Microsoft solve really tough organizational and, and business problems and really you know help Microsoft create and uh, solidify two businesses that, that, that you know now to this date produce amazing amazing results this, yeah. this, is, this is certainly and I feel this is this is part of the legacy that I helped create and I, and I feel incredibly proud of my 13 years spent there what did you get from Microsoft. I mean, certainly you built businesses, but that experience, what did you kind of take away from that that informs who you are as a CEO today? Well, I think I think number one thing that that I learned and uh, this is this is part of part of Microsoft culture is uh, absolute imperative of talent management for business success. And talent management, for those who aren't familiar with the jargon, is basically being able to know what to do with your people. Well, first of all, knowing who your people are <laughs> and, and, and being very disciplined of helping these people learn and helping these people progress and enabling those who are amazing to have high-velocity careers and, and get to uh, amazing places. Looking for the best and the brightest from from colleges and making sure that they're given enough opportunity and they they're given all of the care and uh, and feeding, it was just amazing and that was the best learning and I mean frankly now I'm applying this learning to uh, to Citrix from college recruiting to uh, our internal uh, systems from the way we look at our people and help our people people advance. So that's certainly that's certainly number one. Um, I would say the what's the difference between being fantastic at talent management and just being mediocre? Why is it a mindset thing? Is it your concrete processes that you go through? What? It's a combination. It's a it's a cultural. It's it's mindset. It's set of processes. It's it's how much time you devote to it. It it, it all all of that all of that combined. It's your systems. It's the level of visibility, it's how you reward people, I mean, all of that combined. You, you can't take one element in, in isolation. And it, and it must come from the top. Hmm. This, is, this is really the case where you know, the discipline of t managing talent and helping people advance and being incredibly people-oriented must come from the CEO. And when Bill Gates was CEO, this was maniacal focus. And when Steve became CEO and when, when Satya Took over in uh, 2014. All of that, all of that remained, and this is one part of Microsoft that, in my opinion, made Microsoft Microsoft and continues to uh, help this company advance and be great. What kind of thing does a CEO have to do? I mean, does it come down to meeting individually with certain kinds of key hires? Uh, number one, it's about culture. It's 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 creating culture, and it's it's showing example. It's introducing, enforcing the process of you know people being very disciplined and people having the data and people understanding what's really going on with 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 the organization and with people in it. Because hmm. I seem to remember now that now that you mention it, there was a process that came into effect in I don't remember when, but stack ranking at Microsoft, <laughs> yeah. which is not exactly a best practice for talent management these days. Basically, you know, ranking people from greatest to least and culling the herd every now and then and getting rid of um, who are people who are seen as the lower performers 
in certain work groups who might be pretty good performers compared to others in the organization, but... Well, I mean, look, the world has changed. And uh, I, think, I think the world has changed to be, to be much more flexible on how, how performance and how rewards are managed and distributed. Hmm. And I think at large, the world has moved from sort of forced ratings and given everybody a grade to being much more, much more flexible and, uh, and, and being much more flexible in, in distributing rewards. Uh, it would be fair to say that it took Microsoft maybe a few years too long to move to that system. And uh, sort of being incredibly disciplined in, in managing talent almost to the extreme, to a certain degree backfired. And uh, I'm sure you and everyone else read back then Vanity Fair article and uh, you know all, all of that came came into light and that it was just not healthy. But one thing that I would point to is um, how quickly did the company recover and how much attention was given to it. And uh, I was actually commenting to uh, one of the Vanity Fair reporters that they should take credit for helping Microsoft change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess if only it worked that way. Um, <laughs> from well, a, from I mean, a and, 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 and you know, frank, frankly, frankly, that is that is that is another thing that um, that uh, I learned in my 13 years at Microsoft is you really need to be constantly learning, and you really need to be constantly looking at what's going on around it, and uh, immediately apply it to recover and to improve. Is it is always a process of constant improvement. And that's what happened in that particular case. What's your process for constantly learning and staying sharp? Well, you read a lot. You're, you're, you always have your eye open using publications like yours <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and many others. I actually, I must say that in the last, in the last two years, um, I've, I've, I'm using Twitter not exclusively, but close to being my source of sort of stream of information. It's like, it's my channel. I, I designed these channels. I, I'm being very judici judicious on, uh, you know, how many channels do I subscribe to. I'm, I'm at about 120. I don't think anybody can consume more than that. 120 is a bit tough. But it basically gives me a combination of technical news, latest things in, uh, in society and the overall environment, and uh, sort of global, global economy and geopolitics. And uh, that allows me to stay in constant touch with reality and it allows me to constantly constantly tweak and uh, and react very quickly because what I what I found I mean interestingly turns out the Twitter is actually the first place where the news appears it really is very often yeah it's dizzying to me why they can't build a better growing business around it <laughs> They're delivering great service. They are. They're delivering great service that many of us benefiting from. So in the downtime that you can find, you also ski. I do. Whenever I can find time. <laughs> how did you how did you first take that up? Uh, I just always wanted to do it as a kid. And uh, you know, I just, you know, every time I tried to do it and uh, on my own and then uh, you know, having both my Mom and my stepdad as a doctors was always a blocker because they always looked for negatives and hey, you know, mountain skiing, alpine skiing inevitably leads to uh, broken know, legs broken and legs and necks and stuff like that. Yeah. 
and over the years I had both, and, and that's okay. Both? Wait, you broke your neck? I broke my neck. That's okay. It's, it's, it was a long time ago. Well, yeah, I mean, you look good, but... Thank you. T how did that happen? Well, I you know, fell down. I mean, I was, how, 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 does, how does that happen? I've never broken my neck. I don't know. Does a tree have to be involved? Another skier? Or uh, you just no, have to it, fall down was, a very steep no, it, was just, it was just spring skiing. It was a long jump, and uh, I, I overshoot and landed in the mud and did like this. Okay. So it, it, was, it, was, it was a bit painful. It was, it was you know, I, I just had to wear color for, for a few months, and, and it, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately, it, it reoccurs. And uh, unfortunately, it reoccurs. So I don't... I don't ski at speeds that I used to. It's, you know, it, it, unfortunately, it's a recurring, recurring thing. And um, I was last time it recurred, I was told that I have one more fall left in me, and so I'm. <laughs> right. That'll. If you're constantly learning, then you learn that lesson. Uh, you I learn, yeah. But, I, but I've been ski racing since the age of 12, and oh. uh, last time I raced was um, was last season. And since I moved to South Florida, there isn't much of uh, ski racing in South Florida. <laughs> and you don't really have much time to travel for fun. <laughs> right. Yeah, so my season unfortunately shrunk from uh, about um, 40 days on average when I lived in Pacific Northwest to uh, barely squeezing 12 days this season. Hmm. The season unfortunately is pretty much over. There's a lot of debate these days about what young people should be learning, what they should be focusing on, especially after high school, what kinds of institutions of higher learning they should be going to, the breadth or specificity of courses they should be taking in order to succeed in their future careers. Where do you fall in that debate? Does there need to be more kind of job-specific skills training at that stage or more broad acquisition of knowledge or what? Well, I think, I think, I think they've got to be both. And of course, computer executive in me will always tell you everybody must go and study STEM. <laughs> uh, but it's 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 not as simple, and, and, and it's and it's and it's more sophisticated. And I think the, the way I think about education, the most important thing that people need to study in school and in high school is really study how to study. Mm. I think that's the impo most important thing to, 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 for people to get, in, to get in high school. And the basics, you know, basic math, how you read, how you write, and, 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 and all of that. Uh, of course, and basic science. So basically, you know, being, being knowledgeable about, about, about the basics. And I actually think the, you know, first, first two years in, uh, in college need to be focused on deepening that knowledge. Generic, generic, generic knowledge. Gene generic knowledge. You, you, you really need to have the broad perspective, broad perspective on different things. Because frankly, even if you go deep into one field, that breadth of knowledge and ab ability to grasp different disciplines and correlate them in your head is very important. Mm. And it's not just about correlating math with physics. Of course, they're, they're inseparable. But it's, you know, it's about you know, thinking through history's lessons and uh, being thoughtful about, you know, what were the unrelated events that may have happened in the past that you could think of as an analogy to what might happen in the future or how do you apply it to your own decision making. It's a simple example. There, there are many, many, many of those things that I believe sort of in, in the first two years of college people really need to grasp. And uh, I think the um, senior years and uh, again sort of going back 
the school that I went to, uh, I went for five years. So not, it's not, it's not three, not four. It was five years, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, the uh, the two senior years were pretty much focused on uh, your chosen profession, and uh, almost exclusively all the courses and all of the program were focused on you know your chosen profession. And so that was a little bit more like grad school. Pretty much, I, w I would say that 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 system had had a combination. I would I would say. So if I were to place the degree that I got, it would it would probably be somewhere in between bachelor and master, mm -hmm. uh, I, I I would say, and um, yeah, I, th I think I think that specialization is is important. And actually, there there are schools there are schools uh, in the United States that are that are that are doing it and doing it quite well. I think um, RTU has an amazing program where you know you start first year I think is generic and then. The, the remaining three years, you go into a very deep specialization, and uh, RTU you, meaning it's Rochester Technology. Rochester Technology. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. R, R, sorry, RIT. Rochester, Rochester Institute of Technology. Institute of Technology. Okay. Yeah. RIT. RIT. I think. I think what's that called? Rochester. Anyways, Rochester. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People I, will I, look I, up Rochester. I, I, no, I, I, and and I know I know their program well because you know a few years ago when my son was choosing a school, I traveled there with him and. Uh, was really impressed with the program, and mm. uh, and Microsoft used to hire a lot of people from there. So it's um, so that's um, so yeah. It's senior senior years being being sort of really focused, but most importantly, not only being focused on studies, but uh, but spending time uh, interning. And there's some schools that are you know big promoters of internships and working with companies to help place their student body into internships. Uh, and I think that is that is hugely important. How do you encourage Citrix employees to continue learning? Is that something that you have to set policies in place to do? Is it something that you see as important? Because I mean, it seems to me like technology, it's always changed yep. fast, but now that it's becoming so much a part of everyday life, that understanding of uh, how people think, how they interact with each other, the understanding of culture is becoming even more important to being able to innovate technologically. So how do you get a workforce to keep reinventing itself? Well, you start by communicating that this is important and, and you start by, you start the conversation. You start by encouraging strong examples and demonstrating people who leave this value of curiosity and who learned amazing things and applied them to uh, be more successful at work. Uh, you publicly encourage and reward those who do that. So you demonstrate those examples and you constantly showcase them. You leave it by example, by sharing with your circle of co-workers on what you learned and what you just read and what you saw and uh, and you demonstrate that you're doing it yourself so you know leading by example cannot be understated <laughs> this is still probably one of the most important uh, tricks in, um, in, uh, in 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 leadership and, and then of course you you set you set the environment you have you set the structured environment where people can learn you you develop programs, you develop courses, you, uh, you provide opportunities. Like since last year at Citrix, we have uh, 
uh, strategy leadership program for all of our vice presidents and uh, sort of making sure that they have ability to learn. We, we bring instructors from uh, Harvard Business School, you know, and, and we will be doing more. We'll be doing more for you know, high potential employees and, um, and people who just enter the company too. And that is a good setup for my closing question, which is, can you share a couple things that you've read or seen lately that have challenged your thinking um, or, or helped you to explore new ideas? Well, look, there, there's there's a lot there's a lot that's happening in in artificial intelligence today, and uh, sort of looking what uh, what current practitioners of AI are saying. They're they're folks from IBM who are, who've written a lot of interesting white papers. They're folks with Microsoft that work on um, uh, Azure Machine Learning Toolkit. There's some interesting white papers coming from there. So I wouldn't I wouldn't point to books. These are these are these are really white papers that mm. that um, sort of study documents that people that people that people publish. That are probably the most interesting and uh, and the most the most thought provoking. I think this this, this whole discussion on uh, where where AI is going to lead and what is the human role and the work work workplace of the future. I think that's that's very interesting and, and there's some um, some upcoming books in um, in that which I find quite quite intriguing as well. <laughs> well, uh, definitely an area that we'll continue to track as well. Carol, Absolutely. For All right, John. Thank that. you so much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Carol Tatarinoff. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed, and please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and YouTube. There, I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. And next on the podcast, Kevin Buskey is the founder and CEO of Guideline Technologies, a startup that helps workers save for retirement. He's also married to Leah Buskey and with her co-founded worker-on-demand startup TaskRabbit, where Leah is the executive chairman. Kevin and I talk Silicon Valley culture, work-life balance, if there is such a thing. Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. You don't want to miss it. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.